without fail. What gets us to where we need to go in trying to solve a problem between our two countries is being able to demonstrate to those decision makers how much the relationship matters to their citizens, their constituents, their voters, their businesses, their families. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my friend Chris Sands. Welcome. Scotty, welcome to Pinwer uh, Pop-Up. Canusa Street. That's right. It's cool to have a pop-up studio here, really uh, here in Calgary, Alberta, the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. And we have a series of chats. You know, it'll be interesting if this format works for us. We're banking a lot of content with a lot of very interesting, informed talkers on Canada US and thinkers on Canada US. And so we'll see how it all goes. This is a working vacation. <laughs> That's right. Um, more work than vacay. But, you know, the other thing we're doing on Canusa Street this time, which is new, and it's an experiment, so we hope our listeners will rate us and review us and maybe, you know, spam us, spam us on the internet if you want. Um, <laughs> but you and I both participated in panel discussions here at Penwar. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to play uh, each of our sessions in two different podcasts and uh, and present them to our to our listeners, because not everybody got the chance to go to Penwar. Not everybody got the chance to live stream or tune in. And so we, we want to be a force multiplier. Absolutely. So the, so the first one that we're going to talk about uh, is I had the great opportunity to open the Penwar conference in a dialogue with the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, the Honorable David Cohen, and the Canadian Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. So I moderated it. You got to listen to it. What did you think? It was amazing. Certainly, you are the ambassador of Canusa Street because you hold your own know. so well with the two of them. But it was really substantive. And one of the things that I was struck by, and we've, we've talked about this on the program before, is this roadmap, which has been a guideline for so much of the of the Canada-US relationship. It's like checklist diplomacy. It's, it's rich. There's a lot on it. But both ambassadors are steering very close to getting everything on the list done. And I, it's amazing how much they have got done. Uh, it, it, and they are both very substantive hands-on. I don't know how I feel about checklist diplomacy, Chris, but let's have a listen and then we'll come back at the end of the panel and uh, you can give us, you you can rate and review us. How about that? Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, here we go and over to the session. Good morning, everyone. Bonjour tout le monde. So good to be here. Uh, you're not here to hear from me, though, so maybe I'll invite our distinguished ambassadors to come forward as well and we'll get right to it. Richard mentioned the Canusa Street podcast. We're trying an experiment uh, today. Uh, Chris Sands is my co-host uh, from Canusa Street, and we're going to use uh, this discussion, if it's interesting enough, <laughs> on the podcast. So no pressure. No, no pressure at all. <laughs> That's right. So uh, I think everybody knows our two very distinguished guests uh, and discussants today. I'm going to just give you a few highlights, and then we'll get right into some questions. Uh, so. Ambassador Kirsten Hillman is Canada's ambassador to the United States. She's had that position uh, since March of 2020, and before that, she was deputy amb ambassador. And before that, uh, she had a reputation around the world as being maybe one of the smartest and toughest trade negotiators in the world. True. Uh, she served in Geneva and Ottawa, and you know there was a bit of a trade negotiation happening when you came 
and were recruited down as deputy ambassadors. So uh, we're really fortunate. Canada is very fortunate to have you at the helm in Washington. And, uh, you know, it's, al it's always good to have a badass trade lawyer arguing for you. Um, speaking of badass lawyers, uh, we have the Honorable David Cohen, who people may have met because you've been in this province for a few days and you've been traveling Canada for six months, I think. Uh, Ambassador Cohen was appointed by President Biden, confirmed by the United States Senate. And before that, before coming to Canada on this posting, uh, he was a senior executive with Comcast. And before that, uh, he was very involved in public life in Philadelphia, um, of course, as the chief of staff to uh, the mayor of Philadelphia, Ed Rendell, who became the governor, still a good friend and admirer of yours. And actually, uh, Governor Rendell came on our podcast to talk about how great you are. And I don't know if you've listened to that, but um, if you're ever feeling blue, just tune in because, uh, because he has a lot of wonderful things. So, so let's get right to it. Uh, Ambassador David Wilkins was supposed to be here to introduce all of us. And if you haven't been introduced by David Wilkins, you haven't really lived because he's great at it. Uh, he's not here because of travel woes. So maybe we could start with travel woes. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons, a lot of us traveled here today. We made it. Some of us didn't. Um, there are a lot of reasons that travel is hard right now. There's a lot of reasons that the supply chain is hard right now. But there is one particular issue that's right squarely with government, and that is uh, Nexus, Trusted Traveler Programs. And if you've read the press lately, you know that there's a backlog of people trying to get their Nexus cards. If you have one, you're lucky because you can zip through quicker. If you don't have one, but you want one and you're in Canada, you're out of luck. So Ambassador Cohen, um, what's happening with Nexus and with preclearance generally? What, what do we need to know? What do we need to know to understand? Is there light at the end of this particular tunnel? So I'll say that there's light at the end of this particular tunnel, but um, I'm going to let Ambassador Hillman go first here. Um, and I'll, and, and uh, look, we're, we're both, we're basically on the same page on this. I mean, your question tees it up in the right way. Um, but let me, I think, since this is more a Canadian issue than a U.S. issue, um, let me let Ambassador Hillman goes for, go first, and then I'll react. Thanks, David. And thanks, Scotty. And I just want to say it's really great to be in Calgary. I grew up here in Calgary, so it's a pleasure to be back. Um, it's, it's, so Nexus, first of all, I, I, I hear you on the frustration. Um, for those who aren't following this, we have this trusted traveler program that has operational offices. Some of them are in the United States and some of them are in Canada. Uh, they all closed down during the pandemic. Uh, the operational offices that are located in the United States have reopened. The offices that are located in Canada have not. Um, in both countries, they have officers from uh, border services, U.S. border services, and Canadian border services, and they operate under arrangements between our two governments. The U.S. operations have restarted pursuant to the terms and conditions that existed before the pandemic. The Canadian operations, the Canadian locations, there is there we have ha we have received a request to modify some of those terms and conditions from our our U.S friends and we are trying to work that out and it's it's you know it's a it's in train as david said i think there is a light at the end of the tunnel and we're we are working on it but these are you know these are issues of 
of public safety and and choices of how we run our public safety, and they're different in our two countries. We will find a way. We did before under the original you know terms and conditions, and we'll find a way this time. So, uh, as I said, I mean, I think you'll find with probably with everything this morning that Ambassador Hillman and I are basically on the same page, which I think is one of the strengths of the relationship. Not that the two of us are on the same page, but that our two countries are on the same page. And I think that the commitment, I, I've frequently said that the way to test the strength of a relationship is not to look at places where there are disagreements, because there will inevitably be disagreements. It's to look at how the two countries work together to resolve those disagreements and to do them efficiently and civilly. Um, and that is that has been the hallmark of the relationship between the United States and Canada for many years. It is clearly the hallmark um, under the Biden and Trudeau administrations. Um, and those principles will apply in resolution of the nexus dispute. The only thing I'm going to say, and I don't, I hate quibbling with moderator questions and with press questions, but I can't control myself, which is You don't need it that much. Which is, which, is, which is that air travel in both of our countries is so dysfunctional today. Um, and Ambassador Wilkins can just be the poster child for our meeting this morning. There are so many causes. There are so many problems. Um, nexus, to use a word that's been used in other contexts, but the lack of operations of Nexus facilities in Canada um, and the backlog that is developing is an irritant within that overall context. And in the spirit that I hear about Penmore and the focus of this conference of looking forward, um, I think we would all do well to look forward about how we can work to ameliorate or solve some of the broader, more significant obstacles toward, um, toward the operation of our civil airspace, which are, which are not necessarily governmental, although governments can play a role in helping to stimulate private parties to do what they need to be able to do to be able to bring some rationality to air transportation. And so I think if we could solve some of those bigger problems, then the nexus issue would recede and be even further in the background as something that is truly just a convenience irritant and not a major contributor to the disruption of air travel between our two countries. So what people may not know is Ambassador Cohen in a previous life when he was running the city of Philadelphia also had oversight over the Philadelphia airport, which is a pretty big, busy airport. So uh, you know of what you speak when you think about uh, the interrelationship between uh, factors that, that impact air travel. And I hear you uh, that, that there are big, broad issues. Uh, so on that point, I would just say uh, to the folks in the back, the shot clock, has it started? Went from 60 to 30. I was going to say, I'll talk. And <laughs> that, was a that was a fast 30 minutes. <laughs> we will talk for, until this says zero, but also uh, the shot clock on resolving this issue and maybe convening dialogue to resolve some of the broader issues uh, related to uh, air travel would be much appreciated. So ho hope that you two will... Um, you know, we'll, we'll look, look into that. I realize it's agencies and uh, 
legislatures and things like that, but sometimes you need the, the two captains of the team to get, get out there. Well, we all have a personal incentive to do this. Since we all, since both of us, you included, um, lots of other government officials all use the civil aviation system and have all experienced the issues that everyone in this room has experienced. So there's a clear personal motivation to try and restore the convenience of air travel um, to the place where it existed before the pandemic. Absolutely. So let's let's stick with travel for just a moment longer, and then and then we'll talk about a few other things. Uh, but travel is it, it's about air, but there is also there are all sorts of modes of travel. David Miller from CN uh, Rail is here uh, now working for the port, I guess, of Vancouver. But I always think of you as CN. Uh, you've got rail, you've got marine, you've got land, you've got trucking. Um, during the pandemic. Uh, besides the health crisis, there were also um, other things that happened, fires in BC, uh, it, you know, floods, et cetera. Um, what did we learn about infrastructure uh, that supports cross-border commerce and, and travel during, these, during the crisis? And what can Penwar be doing strategically to help advance the discussion so that we are the most competitively, you know, Economic, we have the best co competitive advantage in the world. What, what are your thoughts on that? So, um, so I think the pandemic has taught us lots of lessons and lots of lessons in the transportation um, infrastructure um, context as well. Um, first of all, and I'm gonna put the global thing that I think we learned in the pandemic is, it was just a reinforcement of just how important the relationship between the United States and Canada is, how interlinked our supply chains are, how interlinked our economies are, and the importance of working together to be able to manage crises as they may come up. And um, the, the flooding in BC last November and December is sort of the poster child example of this, with even as a new ambassador, um, I marveled at the agility of both of our governments to identify the problem, to come to each other, say we need to work to find a solution, and to find a solution that involved massive rerouting of, of trucks um, and routing of good shipment by train in the United States to be able to deal with the, with the significant amount of roads and um, of roads and rail lines that were put out of service as a result of um, as a result of the flooding. So, the first lesson was the importance of our close collaboration, our close importance, and our ability working together to work our way through almost any crisis that might be thrown our way. And by our, I mean be thrown away of either Canada or the United States. The other thing, which is right at the heart of your question, is the importance of infrastructure. And I think it is the importance of both public and private infrastructure, um, because we, we, given the amount of trade, the amount of commerce, and the amount of cross-border traffic over highways and through ports and through, and through airports um, and through rail, 
We need to make sure that there is adequate investment, and again, public and private investment in infrastructure. That is what the, bi the famous Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that you've all heard about in the United States was all about. And there are tens, literally tens of billions of dollars of federal funding lined up for infrastructure investments across the board, ports, airports, roads, bridges, rails, to be able to improve the resiliency and to rebuild the infrastructure that is um, on the U.S. side of the border sorely in need of further investment. On the pure private side of this, something that I have learned in my visits to Canada, there is a sort of astonishing shortage of rail cars and of shipping containers for the transport of goods within Canada and between Canada and the United States. And this includes food products, automobile parts, um, drawn to my attention um, in a visit to an Alcoa smelting facility where they have an unprecedented amount of sold backlog of processed aluminum, aluminum stacked up in their yard because they, there are inadequate rail cars available to accommodate the shipping needs of that processed aluminum. So we all sort of got a little, I mean, the pandemic was good and it was bad. It was mostly bad. But one of the ways in which it was bad that people are just learning now, whether it's airports and nexus, um, and, or whether it's transportation infrastructure, we sort of got out of the habit of developing our infrastructure and our muscles. And when the economies came back, there's just not adequate capacity to be able to accommodate the demand in, in agricultural transportation, um, aluminum transportation, automobile parts transportation between the borders. And that's a private infrastructure investment issue. So speaking of infrastructure, uh, we're here in Calgary, Alberta, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention energy infrastructure. So Ambassador Hillman, do you want to uh, build on the on the idea of infrastructure of infrastructure broadly, but also energy infrastructure in particular? Um, there's a uh, you know there's frustration that that I know uh, Ambassador Cohen would have heard from pretty much everybody. Uh, in Alberta during his recent visit about the lack of uh, approval of certain infrastructure. Um, so, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, energy infrastructure in particular. Sure. And energy generally, maybe. <laughs> okay, thanks, Betty. Um, yeah, I, I think it's no secret that um, infrastructure, energy infrastructure and developing it is a challenge within our own countries, certainly in the United States, um, in Canada when we're trying to get pipelines or other energy infrastructure across the country. We all know that that's not as easy as, as many of us would like it to be. And those challenges are even more um, difficult when you cross international borders because of the different constituencies in place. And again, I don't need to tell this audience that, uh, in, and David and I have talked about this before, uh, a, a lot of frustration. Uh, we started the relationship, which I completely agree, between the Biden administration and the Trudeau government is very, very good. The relationship between those particular leaders is very, very strong. Um, but we started off, you know, with the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline on day one, and we are 
having to understand what that means for the Canadian energy sector, for the Canada-US energy relationship. And I think what I would like to focus on, excuse me, <clears throat> what I would like to focus on in that regard, and I've been here in Alberta since last week, um, and we, every conversation that I have had in the energy community and the ones that I will have over the course of the next three days, I'm sure, are going to be talking about what is the Canadian contribution, what is the Alberta contribution, what is the Canadian energy sector contribution to the path that we have ahead. Um, you know, we are, we are in a situation of energy insecurity based on some global realities, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the volatility that that has created, um, and that needs to be addressed and understood. But we are also deeply committed as a country and as a government to fighting climate change. And our partners in the United States are equally committed to doing that. And so I heard you say something that I thought was great um, on a podcast, actually not your podcast, another one, where there's this expression, right, that it's hard to learn to ride a bike while you're building a bike. And Scotty used the expression, you know, it's hard to ride a bike while you're actually trying to dismantle the bike, which is, I think really great. And what, it, what, what that means to me is we have a situation where we know that the fossil sector is necessary for the health of our economy. We know that we are deeply committed to decarbonizing our economy. We know that we're committed to diversifying our energy forms. And we know that this challenge is enormous, but there's no choice. This is what we have to do. We have to do both things. And I guess what I have been really struck by and we'll continue to explore over the next couple of days here in, in Calgary, is the degree to which it is the energy sector itself, and I'm speaking to the, to the Alberta energy sector, but I am sure that this is true in other regions as well, is where the solution lies. Because there is no group of individuals who know what's going on. I mean, governments, as everybody knows, and I will say this openly, we are not the experts in what it is that is done in the private sector. We are not the experts. We are, at, when we're doing the best that we can do, we're the enablers, we're the policy setters, um, but you are the experts with the technologies, the drives, the potential profitability coming out of this. And what I'm seeing is an energy, is a sector that is committed to diversifying, that has all the tools to do so, not only the intellectual tools, the technical tools, but the, the resources to do it. And I believe, and with all the greatest respect to other, to our American friends in other regions of this world, I actually believe that some of the solutions that can come out of the Canadian environment, the Canadian energy environment will lead the world. I really do believe that. And I think that's where we need to be. And thank you for that. And um, you should have clapped when she quoted me before. <laughs> you guys are, drink some more coffee. So I think the both of you will actually have an opportunity to tour the oil sands yes. uh, in a couple of days. I had that great opportunity. Thank you, Synovus. Thank you, Pathways Alliance. Thank you, Penwar. Uh, Ambassador Cohen, what are you hoping to discover when you tour the oil sands with your, with your colleague here? So, um, discover may be too strong a word. I mean, I think I need to have an exposure to the oil sands. I've never been there before. Um, but I think given the, cent the centrality of um, oil from the oil sands to 
our energy, our current energy security and our energy picture that it is um, it behooves me to make a visit and to understand the processes um, and to hear the work that they're doing through the Pathways Alliance, which represents the six largest oil producers in the oil sands, to at least decarbonize the um, production process of, of getting oil out of the oil sands. So it's a, I think it's an educational opportunity. It is also an opportunity that um, I do think is critically important as my role as United States Ambassador to Canada, which is to get out of the Ottawa bubble um, and to make sure that I visit and talk to all of this vast country, because there are there are there are differences in perspective, there are differences in the way issues are framed, and to um, do my job of representing um, back to Washington the interests and the needs of Canada. I need to be able to do that for the interests and needs of all of Canada, not just of Canada and Ottawa, or not just of Canada and Toronto um, and Quebec City. And obviously, given the centrality of energy, energy sufficiency, energy policy in the current discourse, um, having direct conversations with um, energy companies in Alberta um, and in and and further west, for that example, and hearing that perspective and being able to reflect that perspective back is very important for me to be able to do my job. Absolutely. Well, let's. I, I should have quoted Scotty in her podcast on something like that, and then she could have gotten that round you, of applause. You, you've got some time, don't right, worry. Right. Uh, let's stick with energy for a minute and let's think about energy transition uh, because part of the discussion in our uh, countries and in the world today is about is about energy transition and things like electric vehicles, solar panels, uh, and other things uh, are really reliant on critical minerals and rare earths. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about Canada-US cooperation on developing, further developing critical minerals and rare earths. We know that China um, owns 80% of the global processing of that. That's probably not in our best interest to be us as the world reliant on China to process these necessary ingredients for not only carbon transition, but also defense goods and, and consumer goods. Uh, we know that actually Tech Resources of British Columbia is the largest critical mineral producer thanks to its investments in Alaska um, at the Red Dog Vine. So there are, there are Canada-US stories that can help and investments and leadership that can help with this transition, but how do we make it, how do you think about critical minerals and is there a way to make whatever is happening go faster? So it goes at the speed of, you know, the need. So cr critical minerals, not to, not, not to abuse the word, but critical minerals are critical to both Canada, to the United States, to our, to our national security. Um, as you properly observe, um, critical mineral extraction, uh, production and use um, is going to be a major competitive battlefront between China and, the, on the one hand, and Canada and the United States, 
on the other. Um, I'm not sure we can make it go any faster um, because the ultimate use of critical minerals has to be market driven. And there's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation um, here as you need to develop, we need to more fully develop and create the market demand for end uses of critical minerals before we can put our foot on the accelerator for the extraction of critical minerals. But the focus here is that Canada and the United States are working closely together on these issues. There have been multiple high-level cabinet-to-cabinet person discussions about the need to work together on critical minerals. There are multiple working groups and work streams between our two governments on critical minerals development. I think those discussions are proceeding um, as expeditiously as they can and as expeditiously as they should. I think the Canadian perspective on critical minerals, which we've heard loud and clear, is that Canada wants to be more than a place where just people come and extract the critical minerals and buy them and bring them somewhere else. Canada looks at critical minerals as the front end of a, of a, of a supply chain and is interested in developing the whole supply chain and the businesses and operations that take place downstream from the extraction of critical minerals. And when I look at that, it bleeds into it bleeds into a couple of passions of mine because it makes critical minerals the ultimate growing the pie strategy because it's it's largely new businesses or at least the expansion are new businesses and when there are new businesses it gives you unique opportunities for example to make sure that you're including indigenous peoples in the development of critical minerals and and small and medium-sized enterprises, especially those owned by women, people of color, indigenous peoples, and other, and other underrepresented communities because you're not in win-lose situations. You're not taking something away from someone. It's a greenfield. It's new, and therefore, it gives government and the private sector the opportunity to embrace fully the engagement of, of SMEs and to make sure that we are respecting the rights and the roles of indigenous peoples in not only extracting the critical minerals, but in building these supply chains down from the extraction and creating new businesses, all of which foster rebuilding our economies after the pandemic and our acceleration of climate change. Thank you for that. I want to come back to SMEs in a minute, but Ambassador Hillman, would you want to jump in on this? I do. I want to jump in on this because I guess, I, I, I'm going to take just a step back here for a second. Um, we know, I think, I'm sure most everybody in this room knows, that critical minerals, rare earth elements, are going to be essential for energy transition. They are also vitally essential for a lot of our national defense applications. And through time, as Scotty pointed out, we have become, not just Canada, but the US and all of our allies, we have become reliant on China and their exploitation in their country and other, other countries for the development and availability of these resources. And Canada has more than half of the minerals 
that are considered critical to these applications that are so essential today. But we have not been um, exploiting them in order to, you know, for our own purposes and for the purposes of, of selling to other countries. And why is that? It's because, as always, as often is the case, um, we have a country that overproduced and subsidized production in a way that was environmentally less friendly, obviously, and also raised a lot of serious concerns around um, how, you know, the, the, those who were called upon to exploit those resources were being treated and benefiting from that exploitation. But we were getting those resources cheaply, and therefore there wasn't a market incentive for that to be done in our country, in the United States, and in other allied countries. What we have all woken up to, and maybe you know later than we should have, but better late than never, is that we cannot rely on those relationships when this is so essential to our economy, which is going to be driven by energy transition and the electrification that we're all moving towards, and of course our defense applications. So. Um, I agree that there will have to be some obviously private sector driven, but we are also providing market signals into the market. Uh, the government of Canada has, in, has, has now devoted $4 billion, and it's not exclusive to, to extraction, it's to things that are important for governments to do, like infrastructure, like roads, like, uh, like investment in the technologies that will come to refine the minerals, to use the minerals, to apply the minerals. To you know, to as 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 David rightly points out, to make sure that we are part of that entire supply chain, which is a, a core objective to making sure that all of that, uh, the the promise of the future in this area, is is enjoyed by Canadians in all aspects, from exploitation to research, development, and application. So, we're taking a very precise and very directed approach by identifying six minerals that we're going to focus on first that we're going to put our resources as a government behind that we're going to put um you know seek to to promote first and they're the six minerals that are required for battery technology and then after that we will move to eight minerals and we will try to be incredibly deliberative and incredibly clear in saying this is our industrial objective within this country and we're going to move forward in a very concrete manner and it may be slower than we would like but it's going to be it's going to be faster than hopefully um, it would otherwise be without that very focused and concerted effort. I think that's interesting. I think from my perspective in the private sector, you know, if you if you had a world in which you had some regulatory certainty about permitting new processing facilities in Canada, and you had a market in the U.S. where there's a you know defense industrial complex and automakers and others that said, we're going to buy a certain amount. Canada says, we're definitely going to build it. And we're going to build it in a way that takes into consideration the highest standards of environmental cooperation, indigenous collaboration, all of that. In that scenario, regulatory certainty on the one end, market certainty on the other, I think you'd get I know you'd get a lot of private capital. You'd get you'd get what you need. So, um, and, and maybe you'd beat Australia because Australia is coming, coming in um, competing with Canada for the U.S. market. And so, you know, there is some urgency there. Ambassador Cohen? I just, I mean, I, I love Kirsten's answer because it laid out what the incredible complexity is here because we're, we're competing against somebody who's cheated. And right. we have to recognize, and 
regulations is something government can do, but it's regulations that are going to cost some money, ultimately, and the Chinese don't have those regulations. And it's some, to do something in an environmentally friendly way, well, the, our, the Chinese don't have those types of requirements. And presumably, we're going to want to create these new business opportunities with family-sustaining employment. Um, and the Chinese are not operating under those constraints. And so this is a place where, where the United States and Canada can work together in a unique fashion. We do need the private sector, but as government, we need to understand that the private sector alone is not likely to be able to solve this problem and provide market certainty when there might be, and this is not a real number, I'm just making it up, but there might be an opportunity to buy the same minerals at half the price from a right. different right. competitor. So we as, a gov we as government need to work together and figure out how to level the playing field to be able to help to create the market certainty that you're talking about. It's why Amen. the problem yeah. is so complicated. Right, totally. One of the things you both alluded to uh, that I want to explore and take in a little bit of a different direction is when you're developing these um, these resources or even when you're developing the oil sands, uh, there's a lot of water involved and a lot of uh, important obligations on water. Um, I, I can't not say this with Senator Mike Cuff of Montana sitting right here in the front within bun-throwing distance. Um, let's talk about water for a second. And, um, and there are all sorts of water topics that are important in this region, but maybe if I could start with a question for you, Ambassador Cohen, about the Columbia River Treaty. It's something people in this room uh, care a lot about. Where are we with the negotiations on Columbia River, and, and how are you thinking about it? So I might, I, I don't think I'll come to regret this, but I will say that I'm in a pretty optimistic state with respect to the Columbia River Treaty negotiations at this point. Um, this is a place where the United States and Canada are in violent agreement as to the importance of modernizing the treaty, to the importance of the Columbia River Basin for, for, for provision of hydropower, for um, flood control and ecosystem control, and maybe most importantly, on the need for a modernization of the provisions of the treaty. So those negotiations began last year. Um, there have been multiple productive, formal, and informal negotiating sessions. There has been progress made at the bargaining table. The next set of formal negotiations is scheduled, will be hosted by Canada in Vancouver um, in August, I think August 10th and 11th. And we continue to make productive progress in modernizing the Columbia River Treaty. And I do think that this is something that we will bring to closure sooner rather than later. Okay. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in on Columbia River. There's another, just to prove, if you haven't used the, the app, uh, just to prove that people can use it through this conference, I'm going to take a question that's on the monitor from the app and, and uh, pose it to you, Ambassador Hillman. Uh, given, so still on water, given the volatility of water, 
Um, and what's happening in the drier areas, particularly of, of our country, of, of the United States and the Southwest. Are there current conversations um, or collaboration uh, that, are, that should be of interest uh, to this group and more broadly between Canada and the United States on, on water, on this precious resource? Uh, that's a that's a great question a super important topic i think so first to say on water management water resource management uh i'm aware of quite a bit of collaboration that takes place across the country including uh here in the western region because our scientists in fact i was at the university of lethbridge last week and it's a very dry part of this province and they have a lot of uh but they, there are also parts of the the province that that feed into that region and so water management water care is is a, a large um, field of research and I, in talking to the researchers there i asked about collaboration with the united states and they said absolutely they, they share data they share trends and they also look to find um technology together that can assist in in dealing with our changing climate and changing precipitation patterns and it's not just drought right it's it's, it's both sides of the coin it's the drought and the floods again, as we saw in, in, in British Columbia last year. So I think that, I, I, yes, there's a lot of collaboration that's taking place. Um, are we catching every ball? No, because there's, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of challenges out there. But I think that if you, and I am by no means a water scientist, but if we look at the way water flows within our continent, it certainly doesn't respect our national geographical boundaries. It has its own plan. And therefore, there's no way to do this properly unless we are working together. Thank you for that. We have about five minutes left, uh, so we're we're in the we're in the home stretch here. Uh, Ambassador Cohen, I promised to come back to SMEs, so I want to come back to it now. I have to say, you and I have I've had the great privilege of interacting with you uh, a number of times since you've taken post, and uh, every single time, no matter what the topic is, uh, no matter what we're supposed to talk about, your uh, interest, devotion to SMEs uh, and diversity and inclusion comes up. So, um, and you come by that honestly. This is not new to this position. You've been you've been doing this in in several lifetimes. So, maybe talk a little bit about that, and maybe get into some. And I know you've you've had meetings while you've been here in Alberta. So, could you talk about that a little bit? Why is that so important to you? Why are you um, always bringing it up? Well, it is important to me, but I'd argue that it should be important to every person in this room. It's important to Canada as a country to the United States as a country. I start from a very simple, from a very simple proposition, which is that 99% um, of the companies in Canada and the United States are SMEs, and 90% of the jobs that are created in both the United States and Canada are created by SMEs. So if we're talking about an economic recovery from the pandemic, if we're talking about economic robustness, we better be talking about SMEs because that's where the jobs are. It's, it's the old Willie Sutton theory on bank robbery. Why do you rob banks? Because, because that's, that's where, where the money, money is. is. Why am I focused on SMEs? Because that's where the jobs are. And that's what we need to focus on. And after the pandemic, I feel even more strongly about this. And I just ask everyone to think from your own personal experience, who is impacted most adversely in the pandemic? SMEs these small and medium-sized enterprises who just didn't have any cushion or any reserve, and so many of them went out of business or had to shut down. Um, and so as we recover from the pandemic, 
I think it is only fair and appropriate that we focus on the SME sector, um, make sure that they recover from the pandemic. That is how we will have a, 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 that's how we will build back better, to use the vernacular of the roadmap. The building back is one thing, building back better is building back more equitably, making sure that everybody shares in the recovery. And that is what leads me to put the gloss on SMEs every time I talk about them, that we have a particular focus on SMEs that are owned by women, people of color, indigenous peoples, and other underrepresented groups. And this is a place, and three of us were talking beforehand, but this is a place where we're doing things. Canada and the United States are already doing things. I had the honor of hosting a trade mission from my hometown of Philadelphia in Ottawa last week, where 50 SMEs came from Philadelphia to Ottawa, and we put them together with 20 or 30 SMEs from Canada, and in a whole day of workshops and sessions, most importantly, networking, where introductions were being made, and I am convinced we will see business deals across the border benefiting SMEs in Canada and in the United States growing out of that trade mission. And it's not the first time that the embassy has done this. We have sponsored SMEs for indigenous people in Vancouver um, and elsewhere in, in British Columbia, because again, this is where the jobs are. And if we can focus on this group and if we can engage them and engage with them and help to make them part of the economic recovery, we will benefit our economies and we will benefit those businesses and make an impact in the diversity and inclusion space as well. Well, and not only that, but I can tell this group for sure in Ottawa, uh, there are people that now know how to make a proper Philly cheesesteak <laughs> because of your right. effort. So that's important. Can Ambassador, I, please. Can I just add, like, I yes. know where I see the clock and it's it's. it's, it's okay, I got one more question down. for you, but go ahead. Okay, I just want to say 20 seconds on SMEs and trade. So, um, as David says, the vast majority of our economy is run by these governments, the vast majority are these companies, and the vast majority of jobs are in these companies. But an, an interesting statistic is that they are far less likely to trade internationally than larger companies. They're far less likely to take that first step into trade, which is a shame because we know that companies that trade internationally are more resilient, they pay higher wages, and they have better growth. So what does that mean for the Canada-US relationship? It means that we're not trying to just cooperate on small and medium-sized enterprises because it's good for our own economies, and but we're trying to focus on it because we want to push them into each other's markets. We want to start them trading with each other. Again, when companies, Canadian companies and American companies, it's true on both sides of the border, when they tip their, dip their toe into the trade waters for the first time, it's in each other's countries. So countries, Canadian companies are, if they're going to start to trade, the vast majority of the time, they're gonna start in the United States. And the same is true of American companies into Canada. So what we wanna do is try and give these groups the skills that they have, the confidence, the connections, that they have to do that toe dipping so that they can have these strong, resilient, high paying jobs coming out of their uh, enterprises. And if I can just to <laughs> tip of my head on the 
totally agree. Tip of my hat on the Canada side. That was one of the major hopes out of this trade mission. To, I mean, everything you're trying to introduce them to each other and to larger companies in both countries to begin to stimulate that trade. And uh, Minister Mary Yang, who is the trade minister of Canada, was on vacation, but came back from vacation and spent most of the day and the evening at this summit um, showing, I think, an incredible dedication by the Trudeau government and certainly by Mary individually in the importance of this and the importance of stimulating trade um, in the SME space, both on the Canada and the United States side of the border. Excellent. Let me ask one last quick question, uh, just to bring this to a close. Uh, Ambassador Hillman, you've been at this Canada-US relationship business for about six years, Ambassador Cohen about six months. I'll ask each of you, what makes you the most hopeful? Give us a, give, give us a, little, um, a little vision into based on what you know. Um, what, are, what are some things that, that we can be hopeful about in terms of Canada-US relations going forward? So one of the things that I say often, because it's true, and I experience it every single day in whether I'm working in Washington or I'm somewhere else in the US or I'm here in Canada, it's that it's, it's, you know, it's not always easy, and I'm speaking here from Canada's perspective, it's not always easy to get our messages through in uh, Washington, which is a very busy place with a lot of people who have a lot on the go. Um, and a lot of other priorities. Sometimes some will say, well, that's because the relationship is so good and we're focusing on other crises, which is in part true, I think. Um, uh, it also has to do with the fact that um, we are, you know, we are just faced with an interlocutor that has has so many different regional and national and international priorities that uh, that are tearing their attention uh, at all times. But without fail, without fail, what um, gets us to where we need to go in trying to solve a problem between our two countries is, yes, it's having a good relationship at the highest political levels between the leadership, between governments, between ministers, between provinces and states and municipalities. That's, that's, that's very important, the political leadership, and I don't mean to diminish that in any way. But what really matters is being able to demonstrate to those decision makers how much the relationship matters to their citizens, their constituents, their voters, their businesses, their families. And that is only possible because of the millions and millions and millions of interactions Canadians and Americans have every day, whether it is business whether it's academics, whether it's students studying in each other's countries, whether it's tourists and travelers, whether it's property owners on one side of the border or another, our scientists. I mean, it goes on and on. And all of you know this. I don't think I can go, I, I tell you this, I cannot go to a single event in Washington or elsewhere where an American doesn't come up to me and said, oh, well, my wife's from PEI. Oh, well, my son studied at Simon Fraser. Oh, well, isn't that interesting? I was born in Red Deer. You know, it, everywhere we go, and I am positive David has the same experience. And and that is what makes a difference when we need to really figure things out because people like us and the elected officials within our countries, they are there to serve 
those millions of people and their millions of interactions. And that's what I'm optimistic about because that is continuing. And even despite the pandemic, what I see is it's getting stronger and stronger and that will always help us get where we need to go. Thank you. Ambassador Cohen, last word to you, my friend. Um, my last word is gonna be that I agree with Kirsten Hillman. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Which is, by the way, which is sort of my first word too, but I, I, put it, I, I, I put a slightly different gloss on it, but the point is exactly the same, which is the nature of this relationship is it's about more than $2.6 billion a day in trade that goes across the border. It's about more than the fact that more than 30 United States states count Canada as our largest trading partner. Um, it's about more than treaties. It's about more than particular um, disputes, most of which we end up getting resolved. It is about the, um, the entire relationship, the milieu of this relationship, the depth of the relationship at every level, at the senior government level, at the legislative level, um, and at what I like to say is the real human being level. Um, and that ultimately, even in, even in tough times, um, economically, even in the midst of the pandemic, that reservoir of goodwill, that reservoir of collaboration, that closeness on a personal level is what binds our two company, our two countries together and will continue to bind them together. I couldn't agree more, and I would just add one final point, which is an example of goodwill and an example of a group that really knows how to do it right is, is truly Penwar. So congratulations to you and Matt Morrison, because you bring people together for vital conversations, and this region is really showing the rest of the continent how to do it right. So congratulations to you. Okay, well, that was fun, Chris. And at the end of that discussion, you know, we were presented with white hats. So that is always great. I must say, Ambassador Hillman and Ambassador Cohen have had all of Stampede to practice. I put my hat on and it's fully covering my face. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully the uh, the discussion was better than the photo op. But what did you think? Oh, uh, the discussion was fantastic. I think the photo op was pretty good. You rocked that hat. And no way. Uh, it, was, it was just fine. No, it was a really interesting discussion. And, and we had all uh, coming out to Calgary struggled with airline problems and so on. And that's a really big issue. But as Ambassador Cohen said, it's a big issue, not just a Canada-US issue, but it's one that we're really struggling with. And there was a real sense that, you know, with everything going on, um, they have a lot to do. And it's not that the government's screwing up, it's that we're recovering from COVID. And uh, it's a little bit so it's together. a little it's a little bit of government inaction. I'm gonna I'm gonna quibble a little. But the other thing that I thought was interesting that we learned is, you know, David Cohen, when he worked for the mayor of Philadelphia, he was the chief of staff. Right. He worked for Ed Rendell, mm -hmm. as we found out on Canusa Street, on Canusa Street with Ed yes. Rendell. Um, but he was head of the airport authority. And so David Cohen knows a lot about how airlines work, how airline regulators work. And he's got some very specific thoughts, not just about Nexus, which is a big problem, but also about all of the other um, 
ways that people are getting stuck in airports. And I have to say, Chris, I am not looking forward to my flight through Pearson Airport tomorrow. We shall see if I make it. How about you? Yeah, I'm, well, we are going through Chicago, so I'm hoping that I make it back. But You got stuck on the way coming up, though. I got stuck on the way coming up. <laughs> right. So this is truly a bilateral problem. But, but you're right. He has very specific ideas. He's a very substantive ambassador, and we're lucky to have him. We are. And Canada, of course, has a rock star and ambassador, Kirsten Hill. And I said, I said it on the panel. She is the world's toughest trade, trade negotiator. It's mm-hmm. true. And it, there's a reason she was sent to Washington to go toe-to-toe with President Trump on the NAFTA, mm-hmm. along with the ambassadors. Sure. Uh, I don't, you know. Uh, but she was a key part in that. And she's a trusted confidant of the prime minister. So Canada's quite lucky indeed. Yes. And uh, as are we, because she, she is someone who is not just there for show. She's hands-on on so many files. And we know a lot of people at the Canadian Embassy in Washington. We know how hard they're all working, but she's in the trenches with them. And uh, I think it's just a remarkable moment. Two very substantive ambassadors and a very substantive interviewer. Well, thank you very much. And to be non-substantive for a moment, Kirsten Hillman grew up in Calgary. She knows how to rock the cowgirl hat. So you shall check it out. Check her out on Twitter. You'll see it. Yep. Yep. I think that will be perfect. We'll try to put a a photo of that on the webpage when people come to listen to the uh, the podcast. I think we can figure that out. And until next time, my friend, thank you. Thank you. It was a great panel and I feel like I was part of it, even though I wasn't there yet. There we go. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.